May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Glad you're here today. Talk to you about this reading from the Gospel of Luke. Big idea today is that the coming of Christ is a revolution. The coming of Christ is a revolution. Interesting that the readings for year C put Mary in the fourth Sunday of Advent rather than the third, but here we are today. Today we have the visitation of Mary to her cousin Elizabeth and the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. So after 400 years of silence, God sends Gabriel to Elizabeth, actually in her old age, to tell her that she's going to have a son. He actually tells this to Zechariah. Zechariah um, was living was in Jericho, and his priestly cat group would come up, and there were so many priests. They would come up, and they would have a turn like once a year in the temple, and then they would get up there, their group, and they would draw lots to see who was actually to go to the temple to serve at the, at the altar. And his, he came up, and in he goes, and Gabriel appears to him and says, your wife is going to have a son. And Zechariah says, really? You know how old she is? I don't think this is going to work. And Gabriel says, well, I'm Gabriel, and yes, it's going to work, and because you just gave me some lip, uh, you're going to be mute until the baby is born, and eight days afterward, then you can say his name is John. There you go. So now Elizabeth is uh, six months pregnant, and Gabriel appears to Mary to say that she will become pregnant with God's son. Gabriel tells Mary about Elizabeth. And Mary goes to see her cousin. It's about a 100-mile trip. One miraculous conception goes to see another miraculous conception. Elizabeth is excited to see Mary. The baby leaps in her womb, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she comes out with a Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now at the hour of our death. Amen. I was younger, and I would go to confession in the Catholic Church. You would get penance to say, and it was a combination. It was either five Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys or ten Our Fathers and five Hail Marys. Let me just tell you, I said my share of Hail Marys in my life. So Elizabeth's words are an encouragement to Mary. Mary at this point is probably 13 or 14 years old. 13 or 14 years old. She's unmarried, she's pregnant, and she's chosen to obey God and is allowing him to accomplish his will through her. She takes, an, this is really an incredible leap that she's doing. She doesn't know how this is going to end, but given her situation, again, unmarried and pregnant, could be stoned, Joseph could divorce, all sorts of bad things could happen. But she's not overwhelmed by the risk of what she's embarking on. She's overwhelmed by the joy of serving and being obedient to God, which is a good place to be. She's playing to an audience of one, and she's willing to accept condemnation from men in order to be faithful to God. She's not trying to make everyone happy, because when we try to make everyone happy, nobody's happy. 
An old fable that has been passed down for generations tells about an elderly man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. As they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. The townspeople said the old man was a fool for not riding, so to please them, he climbed up on the animal's back. When they came to the next village, the people said the old man was cruel to let the child walk while he enjoyed the ride. So to please them, he got off and set the boy on the animal's back and continued on his way. In the third village, people accused the child of being lazy for making an old man walk, and the suggestion was made that they both ride. So the man climbed on and they set off again. In the fourth village, the townspeople were indignant that the, of the cruelty to the donkey because he was made to carry two people. The frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. Well, you smile and you laugh, but this story makes a good point. We can't please everybody, and if we try, we end up carrying a very heavy burden. Well-meaning Christians may offer us advice, and much of it's valuable, but when we try to do everything other believers want us to do, we can easily become frustrated and confused. That's why we need to remember that the one we must please above all others is Christ, and we do that by obeying God's word or the angel Gabriel, either one. So Mary responds to Elizabeth uh, with the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And this is steeped in the Old Testament. It's revolutionary. Dr. Stanley Jones, who was a scholar, said that the Magnificat was the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1940s, told his missionaries, in, never say this out in the presence of unbelievers. It is too volatile. It speaks of a personal revolution. He has scattered the proud in the, in the imagination of their hearts. It is a social revolution. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. It is an economic revolution. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The coming of Jesus Christ was nothing short of revolutionary. It really changed the world. It hasn't been the same since. And I started to take a look at different areas of our culture, of our lives, that are changed because Christ came, because of the Christian church. D. James Kennedy wrote this. Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and for the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, our economics, our politics, our arts, our calendar, our holidays, and our moral and cultural priorities that we could, none of us today, be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known a great leader, teacher, seen him crucified, dead, and buried, and then rise again. Let me go through, through areas. Human rights. The concept of universal human rights and equality comes exclusively from biblical, the biblical idea that all people are created in the image of God. In ancient cultures, a wife was the property of her husband. Aristotle said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. According to the book Reasons for God by Timothy Keller, Keller writes, it was extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure. 
because of the low status of women in society. The church forbade its members to do so. Greco-Roman society saw no value in an unmarried woman, and therefore it was illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. Christianity was the first religion to not force widows to marry. In all these ways, Christian women enjoyed far greater security and equality than did women in the surrounding culture. In the ancient world, for example, in classical Rome or Greece, infanticide was not only legal, it was applauded. Killing a Roman citizen was murder, but it was commonly held in Rome that killing one's own children could be an act of beauty. I see this, I'm reminded of this when I see women celebrating an abortion. I, I was blown away when I saw the New York State Legislature when they approved abortion up to the moment of birth being celebrated with high fives, hugs, and cheers. But that's what this was. Through a higher view of life, it was early Christian church, the early Christian church that ultimately brought an end to infanticide, the modern pro-life movement is largely Christian. A 5th century monk, Telemachus, is credited as being the pivotal force ending the gladiator spectacles. Missionary followers of Jesus are credited with stopping cannibalism in many primitive societies. Historians record that prior to Jesus, the ancient world left little trace of any organized charitable effort. An important aspect of Jesus' ministry was his emphasis on helping the neediest and lowliest in society. Christian charities stand out. They point to Mother Teresa, the Salvation Army, Samaritan's Purse, religious hospitals, and church-supported soup kitchens and thrift shops in every country. If there's a famine or reports of genocide in, let's say, Africa, most people in other cultures are unconcerned. As the Chinese proverb has it, the tears of strangers are only water. But here in the West, we rush to help. Part of the reason why we do it, this is because of our Christian assumptions. The ancient Greeks and Romans did not believe this. They held a view quite commonly held in other cultures today. Yes, that is a problem. It's just not our problem. And you know yourself that when there is an issue or a problem, a famine, a flood, an earthquake, whatever it might be, the first people there are Christian ministries with resources that the people need immediately, followed up by the government, FEMA, whatever it might be. But the first people on the scene are almost always Christian. Before the Christian era, pederasty and homosexuality were not considered wrong. Pederasty is the practice in the ancient culture of, a, of an adult male having a uh, young male sexual partner. That was pederasty. Christianity exalted heterosexual monogamous love, which would provide the basis for a lasting and exclusive relationship between husband and wife, oriented toward the rearing of children. We take the family so much for granted that we forget the central premises on which it is based. Those premises were introduced by Christianity into a society to which they were completely foreign. The nuclear family in our culture today is under attack under attack as a form of um, patriarchal hegemony. It, may, it doesn't make any sense, but it's under attack. I'm, I'm blessed so much when I see young families come here on a Sunday morning, or I see young families in high school. 
it, it's encouraging to me to see that nuclear family being uh, lived out and strengthened. <clears throat> from the beginning of Judaism from which Christianity is derived, there was an em emphasis on the written word. But the phenomenon of education for the masses has its roots in the Protestant Reformation. In America, the first law to require education of the masses was passed by the Puritans. I love the name of this act. <clears throat> the, the law was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. The Old Deluder Satan Act. This name was a reference to the devil whose Christians believe gets his foothold into people's lives because of their ignorance of Scripture. For the first 200 years in America, children's reading texts emphasized biblical literacy. When they learned how to read, they were reading the Bible. Father Matt and the ministry that he has in Tampa, Tampa Muslim Outreach, one of the things they have to bring people in is they have a course, English as a Second Language. The text that they use for Muslims who come to study English as a Second Language is the New Testament. I love it. I love it. All but one of the first 123 colleges in colonial America were Christian institutions. And while these universities have lost their Christian identities, it is interesting to read the founding statements of these schools. For example, this is the founding statement of Harvard University. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal that was the founding ethic of Harvard University, John 17, 3. While America's constitutional government is not specifically Christian, it can be argued that its roots are taken from biblical doctrines. Just a few possible arguments in this regard. At least 50 of the 56 signers of the U.S. Constitution were Orthodox Christians. There's no doubt that the concept of our constitutional checks and balances system is a direct result of the biblical doctrine of the sinfulness of mankind. We are self-centered. We are selfish. You can't be trusted. We need things to say to, show, to, to, to help us uh, check you, checks and balances to keep things moving in the right direction. The idea that all men are created equal is enshrined in the Declaration of Independence as a biblical doctrine. The notion of the sovereign authority of God, as mentioned in the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration of Independence, all 50 state constitutions and our currency, rather than the sovereignty of the state, is biblical. The existence of moral absolutes, a biblical concept which many people deny these days, is an important idea in our Declaration of Independence, specifically self-evident truths and unalienable rights from the Creator. Many other aspects of our laws come directly from the Bible. For example, the judicial, legislative, and executive branches are traced to Isaiah 33, 22, which reads, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our ruler, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Fair trials and witnesses have numerous Old and New Testament support. Regarding civil liberty, founding father John Adams emphasized 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
John Adams, use that as the basis for American civil liberty. The slogan on the Liberty Bell is proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, from Leviticus 25.10. Science has its roots in Christianity. Other world religions may express a worldview of fatalism, everything is fatalistically determined, or of illusion that the physical world is an illusion. Science could not have arisen from these worldviews. Christianity, on the other hand, is based on the notion that there exists a rational God who was the source of rational truth. This, they argue, gave rise to the possibility of scientific laws. Evidence for this is that nearly all of the founders of modern science were Christians. These include men such as Kepler, Boyle, Pascal, Pastor, Isaac Newton, and many, many more. Private property rights can be traced back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. That's another concept that is being debated today, private property. Theologian John Calvin is the person who is most responsible for putting together the principles that were always in the Bible into a system adapted by the American founders. For example, the biblical doctrines of self-reliance and self-denial are the foundation of the famous Protestant work ethic. We see that missing today in a lot of individuals, a lot of institutions, a lot of homes. It's sad. Anyone who doubts the relationship of biblical ideas to free enterprise need only to note the stark contrast with communism. Communism is specifically an atheistic system that relies on the non-biblical notion that all men are good, thus will work for the common good. But communism has been an abject economic failure. But capitalism, to satisfy the Christian demand for an institution that channels selfish human desire toward the betterment of society. When the pilgrims arrived in 1620, William Bradford was the governor. <coughs> Their first audit uh, was socialism. Everyone will share equally in the harvest. That was the plan. And some people worked very, very hard, and some people worked hardly at all. And when everyone shared equally, those who worked very, very hard said, hmm. And those who worked hardly at all said, yeah, this is a good system. So the second year, they had a harvest, and it was less than the first, because who, those who worked very, very hard on the first one worked less hard on this one because they knew it wouldn't mean anything. And those who didn't work hardly at all still didn't. So then Bradford had a change of heart. And he said, Dave, this is yours over here. Kathy, this is yours over here. Charlie, that's yours in the corner. Dave, you're over here. You work it. You grow it. You harvest it. You do whatever you want with it. You sell it. You store it. You trade it. You keep it. I don't care. There was a seven-fold increase in the harvest that year. And those who worked really, really hard did really, really well. And those who didn't, didn't. They tried it the other way first, and it didn't work. Biblical principle. The influence of Jesus on art, music, and literature is enormous. For example, the Christian faith has influenced literature and such Christian writers as Dante, Chaucer, Dunn, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, Dickens, Milton, and so many more. 
Had Jesus never been born, music would likely be very different from what we're used to. There may never have developed the cantata, the concerto, the symphony. Handel, Vivaldi, and Bach were all strong Christians who worked to honor God with their work. Bach, for example, signed his works with soli deo gloria, solely to the glory of God. I didn't know that. He signed every work solely to the glory of God. An overarching theme given to the world by Christianity is the equality of human beings and the preciousness and worth of every human life. This Christian idea was the propelling force behind the campaign to end slavery, the movement for democracy and popular self-government, and also the successful attempt to articulate an international doctrine of human rights. Our celebration of Christianity's role in shaping these great social changes comes with a sober corollary. If the West gives up Christianity, it will also endanger the egalitarian values that Christianity brought into the world. The end of Christianity also means the systematic erosion of values like equal dignity and equal rights that both religious and secular people cherish. If secularism continues to gain, so, gain, so will the restoration of infanticide, demands for the radical redefinition of the family, the revival of eugenic theories of human superiority, the suppression of freedoms of religion and expression, as well as political tyranny. The idea of eugenic theories of, of human superiority, they started this in the 20s, but it was back in the Nazi area where they, they tried to, um, what would you say, cast out inferior qualities among people so that only those with good qualities could actually have children. Foreigners, minorities, disabled people were not allowed to do that. They were sterilized. We only want healthy, strong people to be born. You know, I, I hear that. We have a wonderful group of young people who come here during the week, the circle. And these are young, adult, special needs women. And every Friday, Father Tom goes over and does a Bible study. And every Wednesday at noon, they come in here for the healing service, and they sit here. And Steve and Phyllis here. First service. They are amazing. They are wonderful. They are godly. And I love them. And they're so much fun. These people would have done away with them because they didn't measure up. Ungodly. The spirit of Christmas embodies many wonderful qualities, love, sharing, tolerance, hope, and peace. May the Christmas spirit be a positive influence in your life throughout the year. Let me leave you with this. <clears throat> this is from The Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell. It's called One Solitary Life. Many years ago, someone wrote a very famous essay on the impact of Jesus' life. It goes like this. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. 
He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed tomb through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever were built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Everything is different because he came. Everything is different because he came at Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And we